0: Hello and welcome to Whistlestop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. It's February 27, 1954, and the long-eared Texas Senator Lyndon Johnson has the power of the Eisenhower presidency in his pocket, and maybe the power for all future presidencies when it comes to acting in foreign affairs. He had that power in the form of a tally sheet for a vote on a constitutional amendment that was limit presidential power in the sphere of foreign policy. The amendment to the Constitution was being debated on the floor, as were several other substitutes, and it pitted the globalists against the isolationists. It pitted the elites against the regular folk and drove a gleaming wedge into the heart of the GOP between its conservative old guard still fighting a rearguard action against Eisenhower and that damn victory in 1952 over Robert Taft and Eisenhower, who was representative of the internationalists and whose fortunes were in the hands of that famous Democratic minority leader. It was the final scene in a multi-act play that would have been panned by Restoration-era critics for having too many switchbacks and complexities as the votes came in and were counted on the constitutional amendment and its various substitutes, Johnson made check marks and then scratched them out as he checked in with senators and got words from his, word from his aides about who was in and who was out and who was voting in what direction. When the final vote was tallied on the key constitutional amendment, 60 voted for it and 30 against. It had reached the two-thirds threshold, and the famous senator, known for his cajoling and ability to manage things, had been undone, and so had a Republican president delivered a rebuke by his party. Or was that the case? Lyndon Johnson had one more card to play, but it depended on the foot speed and the hide-and-seek talents of Democratic aides and ultimately the fortitude of a pie-eyed West Virginia senator. Our story today about presidential power starts with some migratory birds. It's 1913, long before our actual story commences. Congress has passed a measure establishing federal regulations over the killing, capturing, or selling of migratory birds. At the time, federal courts ruled that it was a usurpation of the rights reserved to the states under the Tenth Amendment. But when President Woodrow Wilson codified these regulations in a 1916 treaty with Great Britain, the Supreme Court upheld what Wilson had done by citing the so-called Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. The court concluded that if, quote, the treaty is valid, there can be no dispute about the validity of the statute as a necessary and proper means to execute the power of government. So the Supremacy Clause, it says the following. This is in Article 6, Clause 2, and it establishes that the Constitution, federal laws made pursuant to it, and treaties made under its authority, constitute the supreme law of the land. It provides that state courts are bound under that supreme law in case of conflict between the federal and state law. The federal law must be applied. So you see a president making a treaty that was unconstitutional when it was simply a bill going through Congress, through the president's treaty-making authority given to him by the Constitution, because of the Supremacy Clause, would then supersede any state law. And that was the ruling in the case of Missouri v. Holland. And in that ruling, by the way, also Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes initiated the idea of a living constitution. Now, that would be a lovely side road worth visiting in its own whistle-stop episode. Um, But for the moment, this idea of a living constitution injected the idea of of a legal elasticity into the adjudication of these affairs. The idea was that the Constitution was moving and breathing and changing with the course of, of events. And so you have two threats as far as conservatives saw things. You had this idea that a treaty signed by a president could supersede a state law, and then you had this idea of a living Constitution, which essentially to them meant that the, any old idea that came into the noggin of a Supreme Court justice could be justified even though the Constitution might lean against it. So this is the battle of change and the encroaching world and traditions and the old way of doing things. Here's, by the way, what Holmes said in his ruling because it's this idea of living constitution is important in its own right but also sets the mood music here for our larger story. Holmes said the case before us, this is the migratory bird case, must be considered in the light of our whole experience and not merely in that of what was said a hundred years ago. The treaty in question does not contravene any prohibitory words to be found in the Constitution. The only question is whether it is forbidden by some invisible radiation from the general terms of the 10th Amendment. We must consider what this country has become in deciding what the amendment has reserved. I love that idea of invisible radiation. So for conservatives, the old verities were under threat. The honor of those yet to be wed was in peril. The sanctity of things was, like the migratory birds themselves, up in the air. Why? Because this decision about birds would be cited in several subsequent cases that served to expand the power of the central government. Decades later, in the wake of the U.S. ratification of the United Nations Charter in 1945, the precedent set in the Missouri case took on additional weight the charter had been ratified with the explicit assurance that it authorized no UN interference in domestic concerns in the United States or or of any other member nation and there was obviously no doubt that this, the United States would never l- support a United Nations charter that was going to supersede the constitution but the Missouri decision and subsequent ones raised the issue of whether the courts might ignore what the senate had understood when it gave assent to the UN Charter and basically give power to the UN based on the Supremacy Clause. So the worry about conservatives would it wouldn't be long before the claims made in the UN Charter about human rights and so forth would be invoked by American social reformers to justify progressive legislation or the abolition of state and local infringements on what the U.N. considered human rights as as written in the U.N. Charter, not as written in any American law. Only a year after the ratification of the Charter, the National Lawyers Guild, citing this Missouri v. Holland, concluded that lynching fell under federal jurisdiction and hence anti-lynching legislation was within federal authority on the grounds that such legislation would serve to satisfy America's human rights obligations under the United Nations Charter. So basically, left-wing advocates were trying to use the U.N. Charter to do what they couldn't do through law in America. In 1948, four Supreme Court justices cited the U.N. Charter as a rationale for the abolition of a California law that restricted land ownership among aliens ineligible for citizenship. These topics have been with us for some time. So the fear was that international institutions would impose universalist, collectivist goals that would stifle liberty and its free exercise, which was at the heart of the American dream and the idea around which the American government is founded. That excessive rights protections and striving for egalitarianisms would would undermine the vibrancy of the American culture and self-determination and risk-taking. And this fear didn't simply apply to international institutions or arrangements. Its close cousin, can you have a cousin of a fear, You can have a fearful cousin. Anyway, in addition to fearing that international institutions would supersede American law, what they worried about was that if the international institution didn't impose behavior on the states, that a president in the federal government would use these arrangements, these treaties, these U.N. obligations to do what the executive wanted, essentially use it as a extra powerful way to gain control over the states. And a, a powerful executive wasn't simply concerning because it meant action could be taken without the intervention of Congress, but it also meant that you couldn't change out the president as often as you could change members of Congress. So this exercise of power, as conservatives saw it, through this kind of loophole was not subject to the immediate corrective of the popular will, the way it would be if Congress voted for any of these things to happen. So the fear, just to be clear among all of this, because it sets the predicate for our fight, was that the president could use these treaties to basically do what he wanted, and that it provided an open door through which a president could enact all kinds of policies on states that would be difficult to challenge. Donald Trump and his team have talked about the globalist, corporatist forces that are erasing American sovereignty. We must have borders, the president has said. He means physical borders, but also the concept that America be protected from the encroachment of internationalism, commitments cooked up by bureaucrats that lock America into trees and into behavior inconsistent with its original purpose. In the period after the Second World War, when nations were scarred by the war and they were searching for international institutions to protect against the shocks that had created the war, this counterfear that the international institutions would lead to a threat to the American way of life led to a series of legislative actions that came to be known as the Bricker Amendment or Bricker Amendments. And this was, and this is the Bricker Amendment is the central question of our show here, and it was basically the high watermark of the isolationist surge in the 1950s. And It was a battle between executive power and the power of Congress, which grew into a battle between the elites in the cities in Washington and the heartland. When the 83rd Congress convened on January 7, 1953, Senator John Bricker of Ohio, who had been Tom Dewey's running mate in the 1944 presidential campaign, stepped forward, and he introduced a constitutional amendment to restrict this treaty power that I've been going on so long about. It was designated Senate Joint Resolution 1, and it would give Congress the power to regulate all arrangements made by the president with foreign countries. It also specified that a treaty would become effective as internal law in the United States, quote, only through legislation which would be valid in the absence of a treaty. In effect, this was an attempt to, in law, repeal the Supreme Court's 19... Twenty decision in the migratory bird case, basically saying nothing in a treaty is valid unless there's a law that could be passed saying the same thing. For those of you unfamiliar with John Bricker, he was a three-term governor of the state of Ohio and also served as its junior senator in the late 40s and 50s, along with, of course, Bob Taft, who we mentioned before. Bricker was a pretty conservative fellow and uh, today he would be probably labeled a reactionary in the GOP. He was an outspoken opponent of the New Deal and its effects on individual freedom. By law, any discussion of Senator John Bricker requires that we spend some time on his hair. He sure did. At least that's according to every single profile I've read about him. His hair apparently had a perfectly articulated wavy white fabulousness that looked either as if Michelangelo had shaped it under his fine hand or as if it was the kind of whipsaw of a meringue. He also had some considerable self-regard, as Robert Caro writes in LBJ, Master of the Senate. Bricker was so conscious of his senatorial dignity that it was said that he always walked as if someone was carrying a full-length mirror in front of him. And then, as a total random side note, we must note that one day, as I was reading the research, I saw in one of the bios of his life, a little sentence that said, in one day when he was in the Capitol, uh, Bricker was shot at twice by a former Capitol policeman. And so I went to go read this account of the fact that the senator, while traveling over to go vote or something in the Capitol, uh, was accosted by a policeman who somehow thought that Bricker had been insensitive to the policeman's having lost some money and shot twice at the senator. And it was just sort of covered as if this was, you know, the kind of thing that happened. You stub your toe, you get a paper cut, and occasionally a disgruntled policeman wings a couple of slugs at you. Anyway, it was very odd. Nobody was hurt, and I don't. I couldn't find out what happened to the former Capitol policeman It was um, getting loose with the revolver. Anyway. So Bricker, like many other senators at the time, was against this internationalism that had infiltrated the foreign policy establishment. And this is um, both Republicans and Democrats were were against it as it demonstrated itself in NATO and the United Nations and economic assistance being given to other countries through the Marshall Plan. And, oh, of course, there was 50,000 dead Americans as a result of the Korean War, which was an emergency action uh, gotten into through the U.N. Bricker was a fan uh, of Joe McCarthy's. Joe, you're a dirty son of a bitch, he once said, but there are times when you've got to have a son of a bitch around, and this is one of them. In 1954, when the Senate considered a resolution to censure McCarthy, Bricker opposed the measure, arguing that McCarthy, quote, with patriotic exuberance, had merely grabbed his shillelagh and gone to work to expose and destroy the unmitigated evil of communism. Since Bricker was such an old guard right-winger, that, of course, opened him up to some pretty tough criticism. The New Republic described him as, quote, a genial handshaker gifted in the art of avoiding issues and uncanny in the knack of making friends without influencing people. And John Gunther, in his bestseller Inside USA, wrote, quote, little record exists that Bricker has ever said anything worth more than 30 seconds of serious consideration by anybody. Intellectually he is like interstellar space, a vast vacuum occasionally crossed by homeless, wandering cliches. Similarly, a poll of two hundred and eleven Washington newsmen and radio reporters conducted by Pageant Magazine in nineteen forty nine, ranked Robert Taft as the best senator and ranked Bricker, quote, the loser, worst senator. Poor guy, now this is fifty this is forty nine, so He's got glory ahead of him. So in addition to Korea, of course, this is a little bit more of a growing storm than I've maybe presented it. I mean, the old guards feared about the presidential power entangling the United States into issues went all the way back to Roosevelt and his agreements with Stalin. Of course, think not only about Truman in the previous steel case we talked about in 1952 when Truman seized the steel mills, this idea that the presidency was getting too powerful was in and around uh, kind of contributing to this general fear that, that, it, that an, if, if the executive was anxious to try and seize more power, what they saw this supremacy clause as, as a tool waiting for a, a chief executive who was so inclined. And, and of course, we're talking about, for a long time, the supremacy of democratic presidents. So what's interesting here is there's a lot of pushing against this idea in 52, but then it's 53 and 54 when Eisenhower has to deal with it. So it's the Republicans fighting against their own, their own team, but of course we know there's a serious split in the Republican Party between the old guard conservatives, the so-called isolationists, and then Eisenhower, a supporter of NATO— a supporter of international institutions. Okay, so on the anti-Eisenhower side, we also have the American Bar Association, which was quite conservative at the time. It was led by a fellow named Frank E. Holman, who strenuously opposed the Covenant on Human Rights, proposed by the United Nations Commission on Human Rights in 1948, and the Genocide Convention of 1949. He launched a campaign with the aim of offering a protection of against the abuse of, of treaty power connected to those two, and his writings strongly influenced our senator friend here, John Bricker. Holmes's speeches in nineteen forty eight railed against the dangers posed by, quote, socialistic encroachments at home and international encroachments from abroad. He warned that by, quote, executive fiat, the forces of autocracy and bureaucracy we're moving towards a centralized government so powerful, as to destroy the rights of the individual, the rights of the states, and the right of local self-government. Now, there were several versions of this amendment, as I mentioned before Eisenhower was in power. But then, the one that offered the the final push during Eisenhower's term was originally co-sponsored by 64 senators, giving it the necessary two-thirds in the Senate that it would require for passage, even if. All 96 senators at the time voted. 45 of the Senate's 48 Republicans backed the resolution. Remember Eisenhower, Republican president. So 45 of the Senate's 48 Republicans backed the resolution. That means you had a lot of, you had almost unanimous Republican support. 19 Democrats supported it as well, Some, most of them from the South. So they were conservative in temperament and behavior, but Harry Byrd of Virginia and Allen Ellender of Louisiana liked uh, the Bricker Amendment because they were concerned that the U.N. charters would undermine the segregationist policies of the South on human rights grounds. And if the amendment could get through the Senate, passage of two-thirds by the House was almost a foregone conclusion, and then the adoption by three-quarters of the state legislatures was also very likely. So Eisenhower saw the measure as an attempt to undermine presidential authority in foreign policy. And he sort of found it redundant because basically he called it, quote, an addition to the Constitution that said you could not violate the Constitution. It would basically hamstring presidents in their ability to make agreements with foreign countries. And that would include things like status of forces agreements that the U.S. was negotiating with various NATO countries, with which, of course, I guess the former commander of NATO had specific familiarity. It also would give Congress control of those arrangements in a way that would make things incredibly complicated, right? Because a president needs to be able to negotiate with another country, not have Congress weighing in every 10 seconds. He would also subject those treaties to continuous review by Congress, which would mean, imagine if Democrats came in and started meddling with a Republican president's previous arrangements. Everything would be renegotiated fresh if, if these kinds of treaties could be undone by the Bricker Amendment. Eisenhower thought that it would, it would allow Congress to essentially nullify Presidential action, And if that were the case, few foreign countries would want to negotiate with the United States because they'd always think everything was up to being renegotiated. And that would give, if, if nobody wanted to negotiate with America, America couldn't assert its influence in the world. And America was the principal power in the Western world at this point. And key, it wasn't just a principal power in terms of gobbling up power for its own sake. It was the counterweight against the communist expansion. So a president needed to have free hand in these kinds of negotiations to to block the communists. So as a strategy, initially, Eisenhower sought to basically just soft-pedal the GOP's old guard to avoid a confrontation. Can't we find a way to avert a head-on collision over this thing? Ike asked early on. And here I'm working out of uh, Stephen Ambrose's Eisenhower in War and Peace. I'm so sick of this I could scream, (laughs) he later told his cabinet. The whole damn thing is senseless and plain damaging to the prestige of the United States. We talk about the French not being able to govern themselves, and we sit here wrestling with the Bricker Amendment. So Eisenhower obviously took this (laughs) quite seriously, and he's angry that he's got to fight with his own party. At another moment, Ike quipped, Bricker seems determined to save the United States from Eleanor Roosevelt. The joke there is that the former first lady had been the chair of the U.N. Human Rights Commission, and so a very vocal and public face of these of the U.N. Human Human Rights Commission, which was uh, was seen as this um, evil by Bricker and his supporters. The problem for Eisenhower is that he was trying to finesse it, and he was totally outmanned by his own party. It was incredibly popular. And so basically Eisenhower's supporters, including John Foster Dulles, his secretary of state, basically said... You can't finesse this. You're getting your, you know, you're totally outmanned. So you have to basically make this a bigger deal. And Dulles said, we have to make up our minds to stop being fuzzy about this. Eisenhower replied, I haven't been fuzzy on this. There was nothing fuzzy in what I told Bricker. I said, we just go so far and no further. Dulles said, I know, sir, but you haven't told anyone else. So Eisenhower made it through the first session of the 83rd Congress without the Bricker Amendment coming to a vote. So he finessed it for a while. But it was staying on the front pages, and the newspapers were covering it. And it was gaining some support out in the country. And Eisenhower was not making a public statement. And to give you some sense of how much of a big deal this was out in the country, I would like to introduce you to the vigilant women for the Bricker Amendment. And I came to know more about these vigilant women through the work of Florence Kozorski. And she wrote a, uh, a study of them in the European Journal of American Studies. And that was called The Heart and Soul of Patriotic America, American Conservative Women Crusading for the Bricker Amendment. So in August of 1853, eight women from the Great Lakes region gathered in Milwaukee to create the movement. And one of the vigilant women's first initiatives was to publish and distribute 200,000 copies of a pamphlet entitled Our Constitution is a Dangerous Loophole under the un charter congress might take over legislation on public parochial and private schools order compulsory medical insurance or legislate on all labor including the domestic help in your house so amusing of course in the context of our current healthcare debate is that the pamphlet charged that the un was going to force quote compulsory medical insurance also somewhat amusing is that last bit about domestics is a definite indication that this that the audience of the Vigilant Women's Brigade uh, was a mostly an upper-class men, you know, audience that would be in a position to have domestic help. Just a little context, in 1952, the election was, had a majority of women voting in it. The majority of the, uh, the available women were voting in that election, so they are a bigger force now. They had all voted for Eisenhower. Lots of them had anyway. So the women's vote was now a big deal. And it had to be wooed and paid attention to. When asked by a journalist how one of the the vigilant women wanted to explain, you know, got to mobilize people, one of the leaders said, well, I tell people that our homes and children are in danger. What's interesting here, of course, is that you have essentially a battle between Eleanor Roosevelt and the the Brickerettes, as they were called. And this was a vision of women and their role in politics that really could make a great PhD thesis because you not only had a clash of two different visions for women in the public eye, you had a competition between the the notion of women as protector of the home, the Brickerettes, versus women as the protector of the global home, the global set of issues that Eleanor Roosevelt represented. The Brickerettes asserted that American mothers raise their children in the love of God and the cardinal principles of liberty and individualism in the U.N., especially through the UNESCO programs, strove to secularize education, promote homogeneity in American youth, and indoctrinate them in internationalist thought. So the Brickerettes Marched on Washington in January of 1954 before the debates over the Bricker Amendment started. And as recounted by Drew Pearson, the Washington correspondent, the vigilant women quote, swarmed over Capitol Hill corridors, buttonholed congressmen, beleaguered senators, and planted news bulletins on automobiles. Some delegation also called on the chairman of the Democratic and Republican National Committees. The visit to Secretary of State John Foster Dulles did not occur because, one Oklahoma vigilant woman joked, he happened to have skipped town because he knew all these women were coming here. In a front-page picture on The New York Times, the vigilant women were, were shown wearing their petitions almost like a toga wrapped around them. A delegation of women met Eisenhower for 45 minutes on Friday, January 22nd, but the meeting was considered, according to one, very unsatisfactory. Here's a newspaper account of uh, the meeting. President Eisenhower is being misled and confused on the Bricker Amendment by the advice of internationalists in his administration and staff in the opinion of two Middle Western women who returned to Chicago yesterday after a 45-minute with the chief executive. The president retorted that if it came to a choice between the Bricker Amendment issue and the Republican Party, he would take the amendment issue. Now, you can see why the meeting maybe didn't go so well, because the next day, January 23rd, 1954, the president finally went public. I am unalterably opposed to the Bricker Amendment. He said in a letter to Senate Majority Leader, who was a Republican, adoption of the Bricker Amendment by the Senate would be notice to our friends as well as our enemies abroad that our country intends to withdraw from its leadership in world affairs. Okay, so Lyndon Johnson's against it, but he's got his entire party for it. And in January of 1954, Bricker has put the amendment before the Senate, and it looks like it's going forward. So now it's Lyndon Johnson's turn to get involved here. And this is a little complicated, but let's see if we can get through this together. So you have Eisenhower and Johnson agreeing on the fundamental principle that a president should not be hamstrung in Presidential power. Now, Robert Caro says that it was Johnson's ultimate desire to be president that had him thinking about his own future, as well as whatever principle he may have had about the the role of the the um, of the chief executive. Which is interesting, of course, because as a man of the Senate, you could imagine him wanting the Senate to keep power and and take it from the president at every turn, every everywhere, everywhere they could. Anyway, so it's Eisenhower and Johnson. Southern Democratic senator against Senate liberals, sorry, and with Senate liberals against Republicans and conservative Democrats. So here's a problem for Johnson. He may believe in this thing about presidential executive power, but he didn't want to get get blamed for it. In other words, all of his constituents expected him to vote for the Bricker Amendment because he was a Southern Democrat. He also had major financial backers millionaires Sid Richardson, Clint Merkison, H.L. Hunt, who insisted that he be in favor of it. So, what did Johnson want to do? If he wanted to help the president maintain this authority of the president in conducting foreign policy, but he also needed to have it look like he was voting for the Bricker Amendment, or he'd lose support of his constituents and his big financial backers. So, what he decided to do is really quite lovely. By the way, also, even if he came out against Bricker... There weren't enough bodies, there weren't enough human beings because he couldn't build enough support among liberals and the republicans weren't going to listen to him. So, What he did was he muddied the waters by introducing another competing bill that would essentially split the support for Bricker which would mean nothing would happen in the end and he would still be able to vote for Bricker because remember the threshold here is two-thirds, it's a constitutional amendment, so he needs to basically keep it under that two-thirds threshold. So, what he does is he goes and approaches Senate, uh, Senator Walter George of Georgia, who was an old lion of the Senate, and for many years he'd chaired the Foreign Relations Committee. And he convinced George to introduce a more benign resolution as a substitute to the Bricker Amendment. You got this? He has to persuade George to introduce an amendment, and then he had to make sure the amendment was not passed. In framing this George Amendment, which was going to be a replacement that would split the support, it had to contain none of the provisions that internationalists had objected to, yet it also had to be strong enough on the UN stuff that some supporters of the Bricker Amendment would come over. That's the plan that Johnson has when the Senate starts to vote and, and debate over the Bricker Amendment on January 27, 1954. He's got this alternative. But the vote, but the debate over the Bricker Amendment itself goes on for a month, and it is hot and heavy. The purpose of his resolution, said Bricker, was, quote, to bury the so-called covenant on human rights so deep that no one holding high public office will ever dare to attempt its resurrection. And for this month, the debate went on, and Ike was still trying to convince Bricker to drop the amendment or change it. And it was on the front pages every day, and it was basically a no-holds-barred battle between the president and The tricky thing, though, is Johnson wanted the credit for saving Eisenhower, but the more credit he looked like he was going to get, the trickier it got for Eisenhower and Republicans because they didn't want Democrats to be seen as saving his bacon. And the key issue here that negotiation was about was was the so-called witch clause. It was at the center of the controversy, and here's how the clause read a treaty shall become effective as international law in the United States only through legislation which would be valid in the absence of such a treaty so basically that was the idea that was the that was the the thing that nullified presidential power that only he could only make basically presidents could only make treaties that the congress could would ratify that's what eisenhower wanted out it's what bricker had to keep in in the house uh, congressman roosevelt of New York attacked the amendment as the product of, quote, an extreme isolationist group which hates the U.N. and wants to secede from the 20th century. Of course, this Roosevelt was uh, the son of Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the leading, who was one of the leading sponsors of the U.N. Human Rights uh, Declaration. So, um Democratic Senator Fulbright, meanwhile, took to the floor in a furious attack on the Bricker Amendment, and he summed it up in one word, quote, isolationism, and said that Brickerites were simply attempting to, quote, escape from the world. Fulbright termed it a, quote, unbelievable spectacle to see Republicans attempting to hamstring the president in the conduct of foreign relations. Quote, it was never intended by the Founding Fathers that the president of the United States should be a ventriloquist dummy sitting on the lap of Congress. Fulbright told the Senate he described the men who wrote the Constitution as men of wide and deep education, who were free from that swinish blight so common in our time, the blight of anti-intellectualism. Conservatives, of course, saw things quite differently, (laughs) and they wrote this about the president. In opposing the Bricker Amendment... In its present form, Mr. Eisenhower has cast his weight against the overwhelming majority of the Republicans in the Senate and the great body of Republican voters. The reasons he cites for his antagonism are ill-informed and unconvincing. They leave a question of whether the President knows what he is talking about or believes what he says. He is reported to have told some citizens who called upon him, urging that he support the amendment, that it is only supported by, quote, nuts thereby impugning the intelligence and motives not only of most of the members of the Senate, but of most citizens of the country. Was Senator Taft a nut? Or Senator Bridges, Butler, Byrd, Jenner, McCarthy, McCarran, and 57 others? Are the leaders of the American Bar Association nuts? Okay, but at this point, Eisenhower is furious. And he has this great line, if it's true that when you die, the things that bothered you most are engraved on your skull, I am sure I'll have there the mud and dirt of France during the invasion and the name of Senator Bricker. A month after the debate begins on February 26th, the Senate begins to vote. First on the Bricker Amendment itself, And as the clerk begins to call the roll, it's evident that the amendment is going to go down. Of the 19 Democrats who were originally signed on, 13 voted no. The White House pressure had caused additional Republicans to defect. So when the tally was announced, the Bricker Amendment was defeated. 42 votes to 50. Didn't get the two-thirds. It didn't even get a simple majority. But, 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 that's in part because of the George Amendment that, that Johnson had arranged. Now, remember... Johnson had created an amendment that was attractive enough to get the votes of the isolationists, but not so attractive that it would get the two-thirds. He needed it to do well, but not too well. And to show you how good Johnson was, you're going to have to lean a little closer to the Victrola and maybe get out the pencil and paper pad you used to keep gin Rummy scores, because this is even more diabolical on his part. So George was an old Senate bull whose pride could possibly have been hurt by putting forward a bill at the behest of the minority leader, his friend Lyndon Johnson, that was easily shot down. So Johnson needed to give him a little victory that was symbolically important but substantively meaningless. So after the Bricker Amendment is shot down, there was a second bill, not the George Amendment but another one. It was was backed by the administration. So that was going to fail too, but what Johnson did is he asked that the George Amendment be brought up in the nature of a substitute to this second piece of legislation. Now, why did you why did do that? Why do you have to do that or why do you want to do that? To bring up something in the nature of a substitute, according to Senate rules, requires a vote. Okay, and that would essentially be a proxy vote on, on the George Amendment. Not a proxy vote, but it would be a vote to say let's take up the George Amendment and not this the second uh, administration-backed substitute, so it would give Georgia victory as everybody votes to agree to take up his amendment. So he'd get his amendment would get a victory, but that would only be a victory to bring it into consideration on the floor. So knowing that he's ultimately going to lose, this is a kind of a little victory that Johnson gives him. Okay, it won. Now it's in up for actual consideration of the actual merits of the bill. So it's up for debate. It needs two thirds support, and so. Newsweek put it this way, Johnson had, quote, passed the word to all party members, vote for the George Amendment as a substitute, whether you were for or against the idea of changing the Constitution. Then, after this gambit has succeeded in sh- in shunting aside the Nolan substitute, that's this second substitute, do what you wish. This, Lyndon Johnson felt, would ensure enough defections from Democratic liberals and moderates on the final vote, the vote on the passage of the George Amendment itself, so that the measure would not receive the necessary two-thirds. Okay. Bricker, having lost, rallies to support George's amendment because he's going to get half a loaf is better than no loaf at all. Guess who's sitting in the president's seat of the Senate? Vice President Nixon. He's in the chair for the historic vote. He orders the clerk to call the roll. Huge drama. So Johnson and the Southern Democrats vote as a block in favor of the George substitute. Okay, now, let's say that again. The minority leader, Lyndon Johnson, votes for the George substitute, the thing that he wants to fail. But remember, he's got those backers who want him to support the guts of the Bricker Amendment. So he can say, well, I voted for the substitute, and the substitute had, you know, effectively everything that was in Bricker. But even while he's voting for the George substitute, he's counting those noses. He's he's got that tally sheet out. And when the roll call is calculated, 60 votes recorded in favor of the George substitute and 30 against, precisely the two-thirds needed for passage. Oh, no. So Johnson has cooked all this up. George is supposed to be defeated, and it isn't. But one of Johnson's no votes had failed to answer the roll call. Senator uh, Harley Kilgore of West Virginia, 10th on the Senate seniority list, and an opponent of limiting presidential power, was not on the floor. So Johnson kept the vote open, his allies frantically searching for Kilgore, who had fallen asleep on the couch in his office, apparently having (laughs) having either... A, a case of terrible influenza, or B, having succumbed to the contents of a bottle of hooch. (laughs) They rouse Kilgore from his stupor, trundle him off to the Senate floor. He arrives, somewhat shaky and not altogether certain of his location, And Nixon says, the senator from West Virginia, Mr. Kilgore, and Kilgore croaks out, no, as he kind of walks unsteadily to his desk. And so then Nixon says, on this roll call, the yeas are 60 and the nays are 31. So two thirds of the senator, two thirds of the senators present, not having voted in the affirmative, the joint resolution is rejected. Because Mr. Kilgore was not so pie-eyed that he could not be roused, Lyndon Johnson won, and yet was able to tell his backers that he had voted for the George Amendment. And, uh, oh, darn, you know, sometimes in the Senate, you don't always get what you want. And Eisenhower, of course, won the Bricker Amendment fight, but his leadership had been a bit hesitant, right? He, He tried to play it from behind the scenes. It didn't work. And then finally he had to to go out and make his public statement. So the true victors in the amendment fight were um, was Lyndon Johnson, whose dexterity uh, helped save the day. And this, of course, was a big victory for the sort of internationalist forces. And our crackerjack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, makes the case that for all of the drama, the Bricker Amendment essentially was the last effort of a spent movement. In other words, it was a... It may not have been the high water mark. Some people say the isolationist forces that were strong in the thirties had been basically gotten their biggest blow from Pearl Harbor. And after World War II, this was a last gasp rather than the sign of something bigger. Interestingly, the climactic battle over Bricker, it it may be a dying fight of a of one element of the old guard behavior, but of course it's also a replica of the fight we talked about. In the whistle stop in the nineteen fifty two Republican convention, so essentially the Bricker Amendment is another Eisenhower versus Taft fight. Of course, in this case, it's Eisenhower versus Bricker. So he really had something going on with the Ohio delegation. The conservative movement arranged itself in opposition to Eisenhower. That's what um, that's you know a famous quote from the conservatives who ultimately would back Reagan. And so it is in this pitched battle in which conservative housewives marshal their support and come marching to Washington. This may have been the end of one spent movement, but it was also in a sense part of the beginning of another movement altogether, the conservative rise that would shed its isolationism with Goldwater and Reagan's very virulent anti-communism, but that would take its steam from these kinds of fights against squishy republicanism and and would take its um, energy from having lost battles like this one where a republican president and a democratic senate minority leader could join forces and prevail. And as more proof that maybe these fights never die, here is a single review from a book that's been very helpful in producing this whistle-stop. The book is called The Bricker Amendment Controversy, a Test of Eisenhower's Political Leadership, and it's by Dwayne Tannenbaum, and here is the review. Three stars. The grassroots Bricker Amendment reform movement was smashed by establishment elites, allied with the Council on Foreign Relations in both political parties. This was the heroic last-stand opposition of the old right to the welfare-warfare state created by Roosevelt. Truman and Eisenhower. Next followed fifty years of interventionism, from Vietnam to Iraq, from Ike to Bush. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistlestop. Send us an email at whistlestop at sleep.com, or even better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. it helps us spread the word. Head on over to iTunes. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank, our executive producer of Panoply Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, would never let America be defenseless against foreign foes, and his knowledge of history seems so vast he could even weigh in on whether the Butter Beetle Battle was more contentious than the Bitter Bricker Battle. Thanks also to Izzy Road for joining me in reading through mountains of PDFs so that I could get through all of them and thanks also to the makers of the iPad Pro with 53 paper Readle's PDF Expert and Sling Note all of which were used on this episode in particular since it was researched read produced and otherwise cobbled together entirely while I was on the road Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network check out the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation.